0: So the scripture is going to be woven in today. So without that actual space for scripture reading to kind of transition us from passing the peace to hearing God's word, um, let's let's just take a second of silence again to do that transition. Are you a Southsider? Uh, when I went back home in the fall was what I was asked. Are you a Southsider? I didn't know what it meant. Um, I was staying with my aunt, who was a United Methodist minister also, and I was, doing, I was leading a retreat for her staff um, at her home. And uh, somebody just came up to me, one of her staff members, and said, are you a Southsider? And well, I'd come to find out. Uh, I, then I, I learned, she's saying, are you a um, person from Hampton Roads or a person from Tidewater? I did not know that they changed the name again. Uh, So my parents knew the area as Tidewater. Then I knew it growing up as Hampton Roads, the seven cities. And now apparently they're calling it Southside. And so she says, are you a Southsider? And once I realized what it was, um, I was like, yeah, I guess. I guess I'm a Southsider. I mean, my parents moved to that area, the seven cities, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Suffolk, Chesapeake. Which one am I missing, Gina? I don't know. New, Newport News, yeah, well you just, lived there for some time. Newport New News and, um, and Hampton, those seven cities um, connected by bridges. Um, I was, my, my parents moved there when I was like five and so I went um, all 12 years of schooling in that area um, in Chesapeake and then I learned how to drive on the back roads and bridge tunnels of the seven cities of the south side, I guess, the Hampton Roads area. Um, I got engaged on the beach, I got married around the beach I taught in downtown Norfolk, I bought my first home near Chick's Beach, in Virginia Beach, and like when my family gathers for the holidays, um, we, no matter how spread we are across the state of Virginia, we, that's where we all come, that's what we call home. And so, um, still though, the, the question felt like a difficult one for me to answer, are you a South Sider? Because all my life, those, those years from like five to like 28, like, I spent there, and I would say, I guess I am one, I guess. I guess I'm a Southsider, but I'd, like, I don't really feel like one. I don't feel like one. I feel like I'm much more of a Northern Virginian uh, than I do a Southsider. And before then, I felt much more like a raleigh durhamite um, My sister-in-law, who moved away from the area because of her husband being in the military, she, like, pined over coming back to Hampton Roads, the Seven Cities, the South Side, but like I have never felt that way. I don't have a real desire to move back. It doesn't feel like home to me. And so I guess I'm supposed to say that I am one, but besides my affinity for like wearing flip-flops 10 out of 12 months of the year, I don't really feel like one. I've always kind of resisted being a Southsider. I once read um, by this British author, David Goodhart. Um, if you believe you are a citizen of the world, you are really a citizen of nowhere. And so when I heard this, I, like, I wondered if that person was really talking to me. Maybe, that, maybe it sounds like they're talking to you a little bit. Writing, he was actually writing about the significant divide in British politics, um, and it, it could also have been written about the politics in, in America, too. He wrote that the divide isn't really between right and left or like capitalist and socialist. Instead, it's between the people who see the world from anywhere and the people who see it from somewhere. Anywheres, so he says, they tend to to dominate culture and society. They, They thrive at school they go to great universities, they work in cities and cultural centers, and they marry later on in life normally. And they are proud, those anywhereers of being tolerant and egalitarian and autonomous, open to change and internationalist and individualist, and they often live far away from their parents. Somewheres, though, have this, they have an identity that is designated. They mostly live within 20 miles of where they lived when they were 14 years old. They are generally more local in outlook, in communication, they're um, communitarians. They're stable, um, patriotic, traditional, mindful of security and tied to specific places. And they have normally larger families and actually also give more to charity. And then Goodart contrasts what work means for these people. The anywheres versus the somewheres. And let's acknowledge that um, there are also the in-betweeners. Right? You might feel a little in betweener. There's nothing that's black and white. But good art contrasts these two what work means for them the anywheres and the somewheres. And anywheres work because they they seek a good income and they wish to exercise their, their set of, of skills that they've learned. Somewheres work because they need an income, need to provide but are much more concerned to contribute to the lives of others, both family and the wider public. And therein lies the irony of this. Anywhere's proclaim the equality of diverse family structures, but themselves tend to live in stable, isolated, nuclear families. Somewheres, though, tend to have a more conservative view of the home, but their actual domestic lives tend to be a little less stable and a little bit more fluid. This is the paradox of our society, that we are a country made up of mostly somewheres whose cultural and educational and commercial and political leaders are mostly made up of Anywheres, right? But there is a more general point, and I would say also a deeper point about this, more important point of this paradox, and and that, and it's, like, also its impact on the way we view our identity. That the great political debates of our age aren't fundamentally about human rights or, or economic benefit or, like, the coarsening of... Public discourse but about how how about identity and belonging and how we see how we how we can find a balance between securing our own sense of who we are while also making room for others to be who they are and appreciating and encouraging the flourishing of those whose identity and belonging is different from our own and 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 here's the most important point of, of this paradox that we in the D.C. metro area, perhaps 95% of which are anywheres, with all the immense gift that that is and offers the world, cannot ignore that we have built our lives brick by brick by brick and stone by stone on the perceived values of individualism, autonomy, And isolation. And it's because of this, which is counter to the somewheres, it's because of this that I believe anywheres, much more than somewheres, find themselves more often overwhelmed and suffocated and paralyzed and susceptible and overcome with that feeling of like I just I just can't. And it's into this context that Paul writes his letter to the Philippians. Um, And he speaks some very, very powerful words. Powerful words amidst this growing secularism in Philippi and amidst amidst this growing self-realization and sense of autonomy as well as declining spirituality in this area. Filled with somewheres and anywheres, but Philippi mostly filled with anywheres. In the midst of controversy over the person of Jesus and over what our lives should look like as people faithful to Jesus's legacy, Paul announces a revolution in our notions of identity and belonging and completely upends our sense of self and autonomy. If you remember from last week, um, this letter is just four chapters and we'll take a look um, at the, that image real quick. Um, just four chapters. Um, it's Paul's letter from this place in prison currently to the people of Philippi. You see that? You might not, you can't read anything. I get it. I get that. But you'll notice that this, the center circle that it all revolves around is this Philippians 2, the central poem in Philippians 2, which is often called the Christ hymn. Um, they call it the Messiah poem here on this image. Um, and it shows us how living as Christians means seeing our own story, our own lives, that autonomy and connectedness that we crave down deep in each one of us as a lived expression of Jesus' story, which is the central part of all of Philippians. And so let's remind ourselves of that. Thanks, Christian, for putting that up again. Um, Though he existed, Jesus, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly, so that all shall confess that Jesus is Lord. This is that central passage, and um, that brings us to where we are in in Philippians today. So Paul continues to elaborate on what it means for all of our lives, all of our stories, all of our sense of self to, to be this extension of Jesus and he does this by telling a series of stories next. So he tells the story of Timothy and um, Aphroditus. He tells both of those stories at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he moves on to talk about his own story. So there are these Christians at this time. I know you've heard me talk about this before. There's these Christians who have been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians. They, as they read this letter, would have been thinking about Paul's writings to the Galatians and Paul knows this. He knows that they would be thinking about this and he knows that these people, these same people who are always pressing, demanding that all be circumcised, um, even non-Jewish Christians who have no clue what that means, um, and he knows these people are still in the church and he finds them to be incredibly annoying (laughs) and they're still in there and they're still bringing up trouble over and over again, over and over. And so they're stirring up trouble in the church and demanding that all people be circumcised and Paul is getting really tired of how they keep bringing up his past also of when he used to persecute um, Jesus' followers when he tried to ground his identity and right standing with God in his obedience and in his status um, and as somebody who knew the laws of the Torah but in Paul in chapter 3 he shares that he's been, he's given up on all of that that he's given up on his status that he had before, he's given up on his place in society that he's had before, the expectations he thought people had of him that he had before, his privilege, all of that self-regard, all of that skill and knowledge and self-importance and independence and self-righteousness and autonomy and self-sufficiency, he's given it all up. He talks about this in chapter three. He says, I've given it up and I regard it all honestly. He uses this word like filth. I I regard it all as like filth now. Actually, he uses a very much more harsh word in in the Greek, but we don't have a direct translation for that. I I regard it all as filth now in comparison to knowing the Messiah. I've given it all up to become this servant like Jesus to see my own suffering as an extension of Christ's story. He does it all in the hope that Jesus' love and love alone will be what carries him in all of the heaviness and through the fog and through the feeling of being overwhelmed and suffocated and paralyzed through even death that could be impending for Paul and out to the other side of resurrection. And this is where it gets really good. This is where it gets really good. This is when we've got to put the words on the screen. So in Philippians 3, um, verse 17, we get, So, so friends, join me then. Join me and observe those who live according to the example you have in in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and I have been them. And now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, and their God is the belly. And their glory is in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven and that might sound like very familiar biblical language to you. Words that you probably heard before. So I, like, I want to pause for a moment and recognize how unbelievably transformational these words are for Somewheres and anywheres, but particularly the somewheres. Paul literally shifts the center of the universe from this existence in our daily reality and our sense of self-governance and self-sufficiency and self-preservation to this realm of this essence, the things that, that will last forever. The habitation of God and and of those whom God has called to share in life of eternity. Rather than earth being the source and testing ground of truth and identity and autonomy, heaven then becomes the measure of all things. By saying that we are citizens of heaven, the question isn't anymore, are you a south sider? It's, it's not even are you an anywhere or a somewhere? Though it's, like, it is valuable to know how the influ- that influences the way we see the world, right? It is valuable to know that and your place in it, but it's still not the question. By saying we're citizens of heaven, it's no longer about where we come from. It's no longer about what our parents taught us, about what good work ethic looks like, or what success looks like or what we, what we need to suppress or give up like health of body, health of mind, health of soul or spirit so that we can make sure we meet expectations and fulfill responsibilities, we'll never ever be able to live up to or ever catch up on. It's no longer about where we're coming from. The the sibling dynamics maybe we're coming from that led us to never take care of ourselves, much less our soul, or the counterfeit lessons of faith we were taught as kids that separated the body from the spirit and the soul, always two very separate things, one is flesh and one is spirit, so much that we don't even notice when we're bodily tired and mentally at an end and emotionally overwhelmed And we don't even know that that might be telling us something about what our spirit craves what our bodies and minds were made for which is worship by saying we're citizens of heaven means it's no longer even about those moments of trauma and fear and suffering that led us to think that that we needed bigger walls around our houses or bigger boundaries around our calendars, or, or that taught us that people will hurt us and they'll disappoint us so that we're better off dealing with it on our own, or the, those, those notions that were stamped on our consciousness really early on that the only thing that won't ever fail us is ourself. So we better take care of ourself first. Which is a lie and literally 100 percent the opposite of the gospel of Jesus that proclaims a God-help gospel, not a self-help gospel. Left up to your own devices, the gospel says you are sure to get on this path of destruction. That's why Paul says beware, <laughs> like beware that we can put that back up, Christian. Thank you. I know you just you're just following along. Thank you. You're along for the ride. That's why Paul says um, beware, beware. Um, and then he says. Their end is destruction and their God is the belly and their glory is in their shame. When Paul says we're citizens of heaven, it's no longer about where we're coming from, but it becomes about where we're going. And this is like this huge transformation. See what a huge transformation this is? If we try to reconcile where we're coming from, we'll never manage it. We'll be defeated by disappointment. We'll be discouraged by comparison. We'll be deflated and paralyzed in this perpetual state of I just can't. By any deviation, right, of our life from the plan that we set for ourselves. But Paul says our citizenship, it's in in heaven. Instead, being a Christian should it should transform our identity. No longer are we trying to assert our assumptions about life and ourself as normal demanding that everyone hear how much we've suffered to ensure they excuse our eccentricities you know imposing our our, our, pre, our preconceived notions on others so we never have to be challenged or, or changed. Being a Christian now means that we're on a journey together to a place we have never been, none of us. And there are no experts in this anymore, sorry anywheres, because we're all citizens of a country we've never known. And how we prepare for that journey, well, like, how do we do it? We we can consult the guidebook. And in this guidebook, we start to learn this new language, this new set of practices. And we begin to have this new set of companions for the journey, too. These other people who are on the road with us in this same way. And we stop saying things like we, like we heard growing up that formed us and shaped us um, into the anywheres that we are known to be. We stop saying things like, life isn't a rehearsal because like literally it actually is and your search for autonomy won't make it not so and we stop saying things like um life is too short because actually the life that really matters goes like on and on into this beautiful life thereafter and is so much bigger than one any one life can can hold if it and if if you're ex- Your exhausting striving and your obsessive worrying if it's not actively building heaven on earth is just exhausting. And it's just obsessive and it's just really plain lonely, right? How else do we prepare for this journey? We stop taking the largest piece of the pie or the biggest slice of cake because we believe that we're like all one body and you eating is the same as me eating on this journey, right? We see, cease making ourselves omnipotent because we know that, that for a, a community to flourish, everyone has to, to have moments when they need to ask for help and moments when they're in a position to offer help too and that the giving and receiving of help means that we show up <coughs> And we commit and we invest ourselves in something that is bigger than us. And that's what soul care looks like and feels like. And once we've got this new language, these new habits and these new companions, we we can explore the next phase. And that's living as if we are already there. The experience of what it's like to feel like you're Already in heaven is what we call the kingdom of God. Living as if we were already in heaven means being able to sit together in silence because silence is is no longer, you know, the thing that makes us uncomfortable, the dead time, but but time in which we are most fully aware that, that God, rather than us, is the major actor in history, And that we are blessed to be created by one whose eyes in whose eyes we are precious and honored and loved. And it means keeping the Sabbath. And not the watered down, hijacked version of Sabbath that is easy and popular. But Sabbath is this constant experience of not striving to secure our own salvation. But resting in the grace of God that is, is already at work inside of us. And Paul says when you get there, this is what it looks like. Looks like releasing your anxiety. Programmed in your, you know, from in you from from social media and societal expectations. I know, you know, I see I'm I'm add this to scripture, right? Release your anxiety that's programmed in you from social media and societal expectations and your anywhere and your somewhereness, or that notion that you have everything inside you to help yourself if you just tap into it. It's releasing yourself from all that anxiety so that you may in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God and that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, feast on whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's pleasing, whatever is the kingdom of God, whatever's commendable. If there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what it looks like to reach this place. And when we have got used to living as if we were already in heaven, there's only one more step to take then. You thought that was the last (laughs) And that's to let go of our own belonging then and release our our constant effort to establish and maintain our own identity and and instead allow ourselves to be wholly owned by God. The quest to discover where we're each coming from is this never-ending and finally fruitless endeavor. The turn, though, to realize where we're all going instead is this life-giving and joyful one, and as Paul puts it, the Holy Spirit then is turning the body of our humiliation, the body of all those things that make us feel like we just can't, So that we might be conformed to the body of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, it's good to know that we are not alone in our our obsession with ourselves. We've been informed this way. I, you know, people in this room may be feeling like they're being called selfish or something. That's not, we're all that way. We've been so formed this way. We have been so formed to, to preserve ourselves, to govern ourselves. So much so that, that we make our belly our God Make all those things that give us knots in our stomach, all the things that feel like we can't swallow them, all the things we've we have swallowed over the years that are toxic and and have taught us and formed us in wrong ways we' we end up making all of that our God and then we're we're convinced by this false idea God that if we just turn inward we just relied on ourselves that that will be what what doesn't fail us when everything else does. And so God, help us know that that's a lie, that when we rely on ourselves, we all, it always leads us to death. Turn us towards you, God, this is, um, this is the perfect moment for us to have this whole new way of thinking about not where we've been, but where we're going together This whole moment, this perfect moment as we are entering into the season of Lent this week. Maybe there's some discipline for us to take up in that. Something that you're speaking to each of us right at this very moment that might inform how we serve you this Lent. Maybe it's not giving up something we eat Maybe it's giving up a posture or a way of thinking. Or maybe it's adding some new insight about who you are and and how our story fits into your story, into our daily reflection about you, God. We want to know you, God, more deeply. And Jesus tried to teach us that. He taught us to pray.